Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 324 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, joined by Jill. How's it going? Good. Hi, how you doing? Good. You doing good? Okay. <laughs> um, today, was this is a pretty fun episode. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so every once in a while, we get to do live events at Cuyahoga County Public Library. And this one was a big one. So you want to tell people who we who we spoke with? We got to talk to Harlan Coben, author yeah. of 31 yeah. <laughs> books. Um, <laughs> he sasses me about that during the interview. You'll, it'll make sense in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, we got to interview Harlan in front of an audience of like 400 people. He's one of those people where he's so talented at writing and it's just very irritating. He's also like six foot four and a handsome man and funny. Like I know. How dare he? It's pretty much. Pretty much. But like it was he's one of those human beings where as soon as you know, he's a very famous, very well known human, so you never know how they're gonna be when you first meet these people. Like he could have been a giant jerk to us and that would have been understandable. But he wasn't. Like no. as soon as we met him, he was making jokes with us and all sorts of good stuff. So he's very personable. Incredibly personable. Uh, there's a lot. He tells a lot of really cool stories about the various books, um, especially Runaway, which is his newest one. And I, you have to read it. It's so good. Um, odds are your library will have a number of copies of it. So definitely jump on the waiting list for that. And if your library doesn't have it, recommend it. Um, we steer clear of the plot. It's we very do. twisty. It is. Um, but there's a whole bunch of goodness in there. So. Uh, I think you guys will really love it. And there's also some audience questions at the end. Uh, we do our best to kind of repeat what they asked so you could hear it in the audio as well. But, um, yeah, if people want to get a hold of us, how can they do that if they have feedback? They can visit our website, professionalbooknerds.com. All of our social links are there. We are on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. You can email us directly at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. And you can also get to our Viber community from there. So you can come talk to us about... Harlan Coben, Runaway, all sorts of fun stuff. All sorts of fun stuff. Um, and I only ask this like once every 10 episodes, and I feel like it's time to ask again. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast and you are liking the good recommendations and conversations that we're providing, if you can go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating and just a really quick review, it only takes a couple of seconds, but it helps even more people find us and be able to join our little community here. So, um, yeah, thank you for that. Anything else you think people should know about? Well, Big Library Read is going on. Um, if you listen to our episode on Saturday, um, we talked. We had an interview, a conversation with the authors of this latest Big Library Read book, Homes. So if you um, have a library card, go to your library's Overdrive site or Libby site. And um, if they are participating, you'll be able to check out Homes without any wait lists or holes or any of that. Absolutely. And... So, yeah, I think that's just about everything. And I just want everyone to know, if you think you're having a rough Monday today, it's going to be okay. Just think of me because as as you're listening to this, I'm in jury duty. So it could be worse. Um, All right. I think that's everything. I hope you guys enjoy this very fun conversation with the wonderful Harlan Coben on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Without further ado, please welcome Mr. Harlan Coben and professional book nerds. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. No, no, you first. Uh, all right. <laughs>
like that library journal thing. <laughs> you know, the library journal's written by librarians. And you don't disagree with librarians. <laughs> yeah, twisty. That's really, I like uh, Twisty I as a. I like the sheer genius one. That was a nice yeah. episode. <laughs> <laughs> So after all of those accolades, can you sort of start by giving um, all of our, I was going to say listeners, but we're actually <laughs> live now. Yeah, yeah, they're <laughs> listening, in theory. Um, a wow. brief introduction to Runaway. Um, no. Uh, yeah. That's fine. <laughs> they're here. They're probably going to buy the book because they're, you know, this is a captive audience. But um, this is a family thriller. Um, I, I, you know, I, I got the idea, which the, the, op the book opens with Simon Green, a father, and he's sitting in Central Park. He's at Strawberry Fields, which is where John Lennon's mosaic is a memorial. And I got the idea when I was sitting there, the exact same thing. I'm sitting there, and I'm looking across, and there's always a, a sort of homeless street musician begging for money and mangling John Lennon tunes there. And I'm sitting there, and I'm watching. I'm thinking, what if Simon Green, my, my lead character, is sitting there, and he looks across at the musician, and it's his daughter, who he hasn't seen in six months, completely strung out in a junkie. And that's how the book opens. And when he approaches her and tries to rescue her, everything goes wrong. And that's how the book opens. That's page one. You guys can read the rest. <laughs> <laughs> so we were, we were joking before we came out here. I've, like, I've been the last two days frantically trying to finish the book, not only because we're sitting here with you and I don't want to make an idiot of myself, but more so because <laughs> it's incredibly good and it's wonderful. But we are going to, just like you said, kind of not go into the plot. Right. Anyone who's read Harlan's books knows. As librarians said, to root to speak about the plot uh, would ruin the sheer genius. Yeah, exactly. Not that I'm remembering it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Not that I recall. <laughs> so instead, well, I, we have a bunch of questions about craft and sure. style and all that good stuff. So, like the first one that I'm really interested in is I, I've seen you talk a lot about you know ahead of time the last twist yeah. that you're going to do, but the rest of it you sort of kind of create as you go. So I'm curious because we've had other authors tell us. Similar, and then there's, you know, there's lots of people with the whole planning versus pantsing. So I guess just how do you feel that that helps you kind of keep, you know, after 30 successful books, keep everything fresh by only knowing that big thing at the end? Um, first of all, it's my 31st novel. Yeah. Um, I've written about <laughs> one a year. So I started when I was like eight. Um, <laughs> um, and also, this is, yeah, as you guys know this because you've interviewed a lot of um, authors, um, if you ask 10 writers how they do it, you're going to get 11 different answers. <laughs> um, that said, the way I sort of do it is I start with the beginning and I, and, I, and I figure out the twist ending. And I think Runaway has one of my best twist endings. In fact, I recently reread it. I was completely fooled. <laughs> I, I had no idea. I had to call me on the phone, <laughs> yell that it kept me up all night. It was a <laughs> weird conversation. My wife said, shut up, go back to sleep. Um, so I know the beginning and I know the end. I compare it to, to, to driving from my home state of New Jersey to California. I may go Route 80, I may go via the Suez Canal or stop in Tokyo, but I pretty much always end up in LA. My second favorite quote on writing comes from Yale Doctorow, who says that writing is like driving at night in the fog with just your headlights on. You can only see a little bit ahead of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. The only thing I would add is I do know where that journey is going to end, and I find that enormously helpful. So sort of along that, you, um, when it comes to your characters, you tend to write very grounded, real-life characters and not characters who are sort of this unstoppable force. What is it about those sort of every man, every woman characters that appeals to you so much? 
Well, I, th <coughs> I mean, I want, I want you to relate to the characters. I want, you to, I want you to really feel for Simon and Ingrid in this book, you know, it's the couple, and, and their pursuit of Paige, and, and their whole family situation. I, I, I don't want, you know, I, look, I write the Myron Bolotar series, and Myron and Wynne are not like that. They're quite different than that. But I like the, I, you know, I want you to really understand them and be in their shoes. It's sort of classical Hitchcockian, you know, the ordinary man in the extraordinary circumstance, um, but in the modern day, I find I find that very compelling to read and write about. There's something in the book, and this is not a spoiler, and I'm just going to stay so far away from the <laughs> plot here. Cool. But you have this piece about ancestry and DNA yep. that's very much an integral part of of the whole story, and I'm just curious. You know, it's a thing that's really exploded over the past you know several years. So, what is it about you that interest? Like, what is so interesting and fascinating to you about this whole new idea of finding out your ancestry and sending your DNA to strangers online. <laughs> Gee, if anything's gonna, that won't influence a, write, a, a mystery writer. I don't know what will. Um, but I always sort of take, uh, when I'm doing a, starting a new book, I start thinking of like what's interesting, right? What's, what's interesting me? Interesting, and so I, I try to, and I wonder, will I be able to get that in or not? And the three things that I kind of wanted to write about a little bit in this book was these ancestry geno genealogy websites um, I wanted to write a little bit about a, a cult, and I wanted to deal with what happens when a family member of yours is, is, is hooked on drugs. And I'm, I'm wondering which, you know, one of these, two of these, three of these, I, all three end up in. And, I, and I'm sitting there, and I can't think of how to get these different stories in until I was sitting in the park um, that day. But I don't do a lot of research, but my research from that one was that I actually took the test. And it came back, and I'm all excited. You know, you get this test back, I'm gonna find out, and I see, wow, I have a first cousin. I look it up, and it's my first cousin. <laughs> <laughs> and I have no surprises whatsoever. The DNA is exactly what I expect it to be, which is not my, my life. I mean, uh, Flaubert has a great quote that says, be regular and orderly like a bourgeois, so you can be violent and original in your work. And that's me to a T. You know, I have the four kids. I do not. In fact, my four kids read this book. It's great. I have four kids. The youngest is 17. The oldest is, is, is 24. So 17, 20, 21, 24. And they all read this book. As soon as I wrote it, uh, we were on vacation. And they all read it like I'm on a laptop. Each one read it in a day. And then they would start fighting over which one of them I based the drug addict on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's definitely Charlotte. No, it's Ben. <laughs> He just changed the sex. I'm telling you, it's Will. It was hilarious watching them, them all fight about that. Well, the real problem is probably that you said you have, you have four kids. Yes. And there's three in the book. You left one of them out. That's right. So <laughs> that was the other thing. Which one doesn't dad love enough that he <laughs> didn't put in the book at all? Did they ever guess right? Which one was, I mean. Actually, here's the other thing about fiction. You know, George Carlin was once asked, what do you do for a living? He said, I make shit up. <laughs> I feel like, hey, look, what influenced you? I just make this shit up. I, I, it's really not based on anything a lot of times. A lot of times I'm just making this shit up, you know? The other one is, is Steve Martin used to do a, a comedy routine where he would play the banjo with his nose and he would go, but the most amazing thing to me is I get paid for doing this. It's really good Steve Martin, by the way. Uh, thank you. So, so there were no surprises in your, like, in your DNA test? Zero. Zero. In fact, you know, I'm pretty big, right? I'm six foot four. I got light eyes, and I'm a Jew from from this, you know, from Russia and Poland. And I'm thinking, well, there's got to be a few Cossacks 
rambling around, my background, 99.9% .9 Ashkenazi Jew. 99.9%. .9 even the 1.1% was not even sure. So um, <laughs> it was not, no surprises whatsoever. So again, I was like, you know, but always, you know, the fiction writing is always asking what if, right? You guys have interviewed a million writers. So all of my ideas come from a what if, so I will take something that happens and I just keep asking what if, because my own life is pretty normal. So I take the normal thing that I'm doing. Can I give one quick example? Sure. sure, sure okay. show. Yeah. So I wrote one, I wrote a book a number of years ago called Promise Me. It's an example of how I came up with an idea, which I think always interests people. So um, I overheard a couple of teenagers talking about drinking and driving. And I pulled them aside. Maybe some of you know, I bet you some of you in this audience have done the same thing. And I said to them, promise me, title of the book, promise me you won't do that. Promise me you won't ever drink and drive or get in a car with someone who's been drinking. Here's my phone number. I don't care if it's three in the morning. I don't care what you're on. I won't tell your parents. I'll pick you up. I'll drive you home. Just promise me you won't do it. So in real life, nothing happened. They never called. But fiction writing is asking, what if? Well, what if a teenage girl called my hero? What if he went into New York City and he picked her up and she was strung out on something and he drops her off at what he thinks is a friend's house, the next day she's gone, he's the last person to see her. That's an example of how I came up with an idea from a normal thing, constantly asking all of the time, what if? By that was deep, give, me, give us a moment. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of on this idea of like normal life and sort of what your life is like outside of your books, um, we, uh, when doing research, we came across a, a quote where you talked about being a socially adept introvert. Yeah. Um, I'm a fellow introvert, and so <laughs> I'm wondering, to, like, to you, what that means as, like, specifically the socially adept introvert. Um, well, I seem like an extrovert, right, to you people, um, and I normally <laughs> am on these sort of things, but keep in mind that I've chosen to write 31 books. That's a lot of time alone in a room. <laughs> that really is. So. Um, and, I, and touring is interesting for me, because um, I quote the great Dan Fogelberg from the song Same Old Lang Syne, which you hear every year around New Year's Eve, and he sings in one part, the audience is heavenly, but the traveling is hell. So I really do, this sounds corny, but I really do appreciate and love that you're here. You have no idea how much that fills me. And, this, and to me, Runaway was not a book when I finished writing it. It's a book now. It's a book when you read it. Um, a, a writer who has no readers is not a writer. A writer who, 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 you know, a writer without a reader is a man who claps with one hand. You're the other hand. We're playing catch. I've now thrown you the book. You're going to catch it. And this is, jazzes me still. So tonight you're going to take Runaway Home and you're going to read it. And, you know, uh, Ingrid and Simon and Paige and Ash and Dee Dee are going to come alive in your heads, different from everybody else's, like a, snow like a snowflake or a fingerprint. You and I have this one-on-one -on -one thing. And if that isn't the coolest job and thing imaginable. I don't know what is. So that's the part that still jazzes me um, about doing this. I imagine then you're one of the people who you don't feel super possessive of your books after they come out. It, it sounds very much like you're someone that I've heard a lot of people say, and we've had people tell us, a story is an author's until it gets published, and then once it gets published, it's the reader's. So it sounds like you have an it's ability both of to kind of let it's, go. It's a, it's a conversation the two of mm -hmm. us are having. Um, which is, you know, you sort of asked about socially adept introvert, and I didn't, I sort of skipped that, but okay. I'll, I'll get back, I mean, you know, um, I'll get back to that sort of a thing. But, you know, writers say a lot of things that annoy me, and I'll give you some of them tonight, and if you're ever an author who's saying it, you've, you are allowed to start just booing when they do one of these. <laughs> so one of the things that writer says that seriously annoys me is, there's always that writer goes, I don't care if anyone reads it, I write it only for myself. 
That's like saying, I talk only to myself. I don't care if anyone listens. That's insanity. It might be therapy. It's not writing. Writing is about communication. Writing is about you and I, you and me having in this, this sort of conversation going on. The socially adept, quickly, I'm an introvert. So um, I'm doing TV now, which is really interesting for me. So I, I was just on set over in England. We're starting to film The Stranger. And when I'm there, I'm, I love it, right? I'm having the best time. I'm talking to the actors and the director, and we're doing all these things. And I'm there for like two days. I'm like, I got to get the hell home and lock myself in a room. <laughs> and after this tour, I will do the same thing. I will love it. I, I'll be, uh, I can't wait to meet all of you later on. We'll take pictures. We'll sign the books, whatever. You, whatever. And then after a little while of it, I need to lock myself back in my room. So actually, what's been weird about the TV is it's fueling me to write more. It's not fueling me to write less because I just got to get back in that room. And that's where I feel, I think, the most comfortable. They say the introvert versus extrovert, not the same as topic long, but an introvert, the difference really, the thing is who gathers energy from one or the other. That's more what it is. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Me? Yeah. Okay, all right. <laughs> Something else that I'm really curious about, you know, having written 31 novels at this point, <laughs> not 30. Uh, We've seen things where you talk about how you can kind of you have an ability to write anywhere. Um, I, just, I yeah. saw you do an interview where you said you wrote in the back of an Uber, which yep. like I got car sick just thinking about that. <laughs> um, but is that one of the ways that you kind of keep writing entertaining and fun for yourself? I mean, I, I know this is your job, so you right. do it because it's your job. But is that the changing the scenery and and keeping and also you know you talk about you see things and that's how you get your ideas. But is that one of the things you do to sort of keep it? fresh for you? Well, certainly that doesn't make it fun. Writing really isn't fun. Um, you know, there's a great quote that I, I originally heard from Oscar Madison on The Odd Couple, but I guess Dorothy Parker is the one who's usually credited with it, <laughs> that um, I don't like writing, I like having written. I, I love to produce pages, I love to tell story, and I love all of that. So when you, if you're a writer out there, the cardinal rule is anything that makes you write good, anything that doesn't make you write bad. So in my case, staying in the same room all the time does not work. First of all, when I was younger and I had these young kids staying in the house, I had this delusion actually when my first kid was born. My wife was working as a pediatrician. My little daughter would play quietly in the corner <laughs> as dad created masterpieces. And everybody knows, what, what, you know, has had kids knows that what, how delusional really um, that is. So I had to get out of the house to write because kids were around. Um, and what I, but what I found is I'll find a cool place. You mentioned back of Ubers. Um, I, for a while, I found a coffee shop in a supermarket by a deli. I came home smelling like olive loaf every day. <laughs> but that works. So it works for a while, and then it doesn't work. So it's like I'm riding a horse. The horse dies. I find another horse. <laughs> by the way, don't tell Pony Powers Therapy that <laughs> particular analogy. <laughs> but so I... Anything that's making me write. So if I'm writing well in the morning, I'll do more mornings. I'm writing well at night, and, I, and I'll just keep doing whatever it's going to take. Sometimes I'm writing by hand. Sometimes I'm writing right on the laptop, or, or an iPad, or a computer. Whatever's going to get me to write. And it's, I'm just fooling myself. Maybe wearing orange socks mm -hmm. is going to get me to write. I'll start wearing orange socks every day. That's all. So I imagine that then sort of moving around like that you would probably be exposed to a lot of various circumstances that kind of sets off those what-if questions. Have, like, are there any of your books that have started in those moments of writing in various different places? Hmm. I can't really think of one. I'm sure it has, because everything around me is sort of doing it. But when I am writing, it um, doesn't matter where I am, I just completely disappear. That's, that's part of it. 
So I like a little white noise. Like if I'm at a Starbucks or whatever else, I, I don't hear anything that's going on. It makes me, a little bit of noise is making me sometimes focus harder. So I don't think so, but maybe. No, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, something that I'm really interested in, Jill and I are really big into diversity in literature, right. and, uh, but there's also this very heady and admittedly heavy and longer conversation that we have time for here about people writing what they know and then also writing other people's you know, backgrounds and other people's stories and things like that. And you know, it, it's no secret if people read your books, a lot of the characters are going to look and sound like you because that's what you know and that's also what's around you. But then something that I love that you do and I've seen lately as you talk about, when your books become shows and movies, you have no qualms with you know, someone taking a white male character originally right. and making it a African-American female and things like that. Right. I'm just curious your thoughts on, and I think that this is a huge question, so I apologize yeah, in no, advance, but you know, the thought of r putting characters who are diverse in your stories and also understanding that their stories may not be ones that you fully understand and are capable of writing yourself. Right, well, you have to have, first of all, um, you have to have, the key thing a writer has to have more than anything else is empathy. You have to get in the, each character's head no matter, you know, I've written male leads, female leads, old, young. My next book, one of the two lead characters is a woman who's 72 years old. So you have to be able, and if you can't do that and you're afraid of doing that, don't be a writer. Um, you know, so I never am, intimidated about, oh, I'm not going to get this experience right. I probably won't. But I'm going to give it my best shot and I'm going to speak to people. Um, in this book, in one of the detectives um, has, a, a is, has a Nigerian um, name and it's because I, I based him off, sort of off of the detective I had in The Five, who was played by O.T. Fagbenle. And if you've seen, um, besides my show, The Five, he was, in, he was also in, on Hulu's Handmaid, um, uh, Handmaid's Tale. So, um, I, I'm certainly trying to be more diverse. It's a really interesting thing because I, I will do zero that will have any, the smallest negative impact on my book, I will not do. If, to be, in the sake of diversity is going to make my book worse, I won't do it. But it's not. That's what people aren't getting in making it better. So in the case of The Stranger that you talked about, and The Stranger, um, which I probably, and I would do it this way if I wrote the book today, The Stranger in the book is a male nerd computer weenie. Um, and in the and in the TV series, we've now we, we've just hired an actress named Hannah John Kamen, who you've seen either in Game of Thrones or she was the bad guy in the last Ant Man and the Wasp movie, and she's a person of color woman who's about 25, and she's killing it. As soon as I saw her, we actually um, auditioned some guys, and it just it wasn't working for me. So it actually is making the story stronger. So you just have to more open your mind than say, try to f check boxes. I think that's really the answer for me. I think it's also a credit to you. I mean, you don't have to respond, you respond as however you like, but I think it's a credit to you that you're comfortable doing that. There are a lot of authors who I love who doing say, that. you know, this is the way it is. So. If, you want, if you want adaptations that are slavishly devoted to the text, I'm the wrong guy. <laughs> the Tell No One movie was not like the book and moved the whole story to Paris. No second chance, I changed the lead character from a male to a female. Um, safe in the Five were original stories. And The Stranger, I'm adding a whole teenage angle. It's going to be great. I can't wait for you guys to see it. It's going to be so awesome. <laughs> if you like The Safe or The Five, this one's going to be even better. I can't <laughs> wait. But I think along that, it also sort of speaks to these characters and this idea of, you know, you write these characters that everybody can relate to. So the fact that it's so easy to translate it um, to somebody else who is different and still makes sense is a lot to you as a writer. 
with these characters. Well, well thank you. I also like picking on the, the cliches. In fact, I just did an, it, um, my book tour started, this is Friday or Saturday? Saturday. Saturday. So I started Tuesday, and I, uh, the book comes out Tuesday, and I usually open on CBS This Morning with Gail King. I don't know how many of you watched that or didn't, but Gail King is an unbelievable reader. Like, she reads the book like she's a rabbinical student reading the Talmud. I've never <laughs> seen anything like it. She has more post-it notes. So afterwards, after the show, we did a podcast, and she was pointing out one of the characters who is black and, uh, and, and hooks up kind of and helps out um, Simon. And there's a line that she was pointing out when, when, when they're in getting in trouble, and he says, don't let me be the black guy that gets killed. Please, don't let me be the black guy that gets killed. So you have to also kind of point those things out and make a little bit of fun. I think that kind of helps. You're, inv and you're involved in the, the writing. When you're transitioning the, the book to the TV show, you're involved in the writing process of that, correct? Yeah. So changing it up, I imagine, also has to help you keep it fresh and like fun for you as well. Right. I don't want, I, if, you want, if, you want the, if you want the TV series to be the book experience, read the book. <laughs> you know, I, want to be, I want it to be a slightly different experience for you. I like that idea that it's sort of not necessarily a second chance, but it is kind of a second chance it is. to sort of explore new ideas. Well, when I, we did um, No Second Chance or Just One Look, I guess it was. I wrote those books in 2002 or three, and I, I have a terrible memory. So I was joking before about you know, not knowing the ending is, but I'm literally reading them going, where am I going with this? <laughs> <laughs> and I start to feel some of the things you guys do. Well, there's too many characters in this one, you know? So, so you can uh, look at it, that's why I don't reread my books, um, but you can kind of look at it with a critical eye. So did you grow up reading mystery and crime novels yourself personally? Um, yes, but uh, you know, again, I hate that answer. Oh, I read everything by <laughs> Hardy Boys. And, you know, all that nonsense and say, like, oh, I always knew I'd be a writer. When I was a three-month-old fetus, a pen <laughs> formed in my hand, and then when I was five years old, children would gather around me in the playground as I told them pirate tales. I mean, I got beaten up in my neighborhood for that, and I was in a Jewish neighborhood, so we weren't really very tough. So I hate all that nonsense, but I read. I, wasn't, I was a big reader, but I wasn't a kid with always my, you know, I think a lot of people are surprised that I grew up with. I was, you know, I was a basketball player. I was probably more known as a basketball player growing up. I, I played, um, like Myron, I played high school basketball and I played college basketball. And like Myron, I was a collegiate All-American basketball player. Would I leave off of that, if I may, correctly correct? I wasn't picked collegiate All-American basketball by Sports Illustrated. I was picked collegiate All-American by the Jewish Post and Opinion of Indianapolis. <laughs> That's right, I'm a Jewish All-American basketball player. Somehow, through painstaking research, the crack squad at the Jewish Post and Opinion of Indianapolis, Indianapolis being that great bastion of Jewish thought, found five Jews that year who played college basketball and made a team. It was me, Heshi, Moishe, and, and two guys from Yeshiva. So, so I was not known like, if you ask my friends growing up, I was not like, oh, that's the kid with his nose in a book all the time. But I, I read a lot. I don't know any writer, it's like I don't know any musician. I was just today at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, or Hall, is that what you call it? The mm -hmm. Museum Hall of Fame, whatever you call it. Um, I, I, I don't know any musician who doesn't listen to a lot of music. I don't know any writer who doesn't read a lot. Mm -hmm. None, really. Are there particular books or authors that stuck with you? Like my favorite as, as a child, as, you know, I remember very distinctly my first thriller, Are You My Mother by P.D. Eastman. You guys remember that book? Mm -hmm. That was pretty friggin' dark when you think about it, wasn't it? 
The end, the guy's thinking like a steam shovel is his mom. Remember that? The diesel picking them up. Pretty scary book when you look back at it. That's, that's my first thriller when I was about three. That's not um, where I was expecting that to go yeah. at all. It's probably not an empty girl time, but think about that book. Are you my mother? You're talking to a cat. You're a bird. Cats can eat you. You know what I mean? Like, it's really kind of dangerous. Mom's leaving a baby bird alone. Today, you'd put her in diapers for that kind of a thing. Um, so that's what I mean. You always look at something from a slightly different angle. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was a major book. Roald Dahl in general is fantastic, and I loved reading him to my, to my own kids. The, the Narnia series of C.S. Lewis, Madeline Lengel's Wrinkle in Time, which is a missing person story, which is what I, I love to, to write. And my first adult thriller I always give credit to when I was about 14, 15, 16, somewhere there, my father gave me William Goldman's Marathon Man. And that book was a tremendous influence because I remember thinking at the time, this is the, I guess old enough to understand, it's like, you could put a gun to my head and I wouldn't put this book down. And even subconsciously, I did not know at the time I wanted to be a writer, I thought, wouldn't it be cool to be able to do this for a living, like to be what William Goldman's doing to me to do to other people? So that was really an important moment for me. Put a gun to your head or a dentist drilled your tooth. <laughs> a dentist drilled your teeth. That's from the book, right, guy. Right. You should read it. It's really, really good. Um, <laughs> is it but, safe? Plus, Bill Goldman, there's a connection, too. He was a huge basketball guy. And, yep, and Bill he was is. also a writer. So he's basically like, I, you know, maybe you're today's Bill. You now you got to start writing more screenplays. You're basically <laughs> the next Bill <laughs> <Right>. Goldman. <laughs> he's a, I became friends with him in, in later in life. and. Uh, we went to a Knicks game to, together, and the Knicks stink. Um, and he was so depressed about it. He was like a lifelong Knicks fan. He had season tickets forever. And he just had to have the whole game pained. And I was friends with the general manager at the time. He goes, I know he's your friend, but he's ruining my life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, are you, are you watching March Madness? If, are you I can. I'm doing here. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Fair. I Fair forgot enough. to fill out a bracket this year. And thank you guys for getting for, well, there's no games tonight, are there? Oh, there, oh, there are. are. Okay, somebody, oh, you guys watching in the back over there. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reason my wife's not here. Oh, okay. She's literally watching basketball. <laughs> well, set, then so really, I'm, I'm extra grateful you guys are here. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. All right, um, I think we're going to open up for questions. Sound good? Okay, I got the thumbs up. So if you guys have questions, if you want to raise your hand, uh, we will try and pick. Bill's wow, look how many of you there are. Yeah. Who do you think was coming tonight? <laughs> thank you. Wow, this is okay. beautiful. Thank you. Okay, um, so I'm, we'll just point at people, speak as loud as you can, and then we can kind of repeat the question for you. So we'll start right here. I saw your hand go up first, right in front. Um, I love the Mullet uh, Byron Bolger series. Are you planning another book of that series? And how are you inspired, other than the basketball from Myron? Yeah. So, so are there going to be more books in the, the Myron series? I'm just going to, I'll just kind yes. of repeat. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's always the first question. So I, first of all, I thank you. I love that you people like him enough that you want him back. And my, the, the quick answer, first of all, is I do think he's going to be back. So I, I don't think I've done with mine. So, but I, thank you. But I'll, I'll just quickly explain how I decide if it's going to be Myron, why I left him for a while, uh, and the similarities between the two of us. So I wrote seven Myron Bolotar novels from Deal Breaker to Darkest Fear, seven of them in five years. And I left them for several reasons. One was pure ego. I wanted to prove I could write something else. Two, they were selling good, but not fantastically well. And I was actually afraid that I would be sitting here today talking to you about the 31st Myron Bolotar novel. <laughs> Third, I always wanted it to be personal. It wasn't her qual Poirot for me. He was aging, and he was changing, and I always wanted to be personal. I always wanted to be that special episode of Blossom 
Myron Bolotar novel. Where, but how many catharsis can a man go through before he's unrealistic or you want to just kick him in the nuts? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so that's the, the, so, but the main reason is that I start with an idea. I explained to you how I started with the idea for Promise Me, and I can do a few others later. But I had this idea about a man and a woman who are happily married. The wife is murdered, eight years pass, he can't get over her death, he gets an email, he clicks a hyperlink, he sees a webcam, and his dead wife walks by. And I love this idea. But Myron didn't have a wife who died eight years ago, so he couldn't tell it. So I created a guy named David Beck, and I wrote the book Tell No One. Most of you did not read Myron Bolotar before I wrote Tell No One, because Tell No One overnight was the book that changed my life. That was the, what they call the breakout novel they're always asking about. And so my publishers, obviously and understandably, weren't so anxious for me to rush <laughs> right back to Myron, but neither was I. So each book, I come up with an idea, and then I say, who's going to tell that story? And if it's Myron, and it rarely is, one out every five or six times, then he does it. That's when I write a Myron. So for six years back then, I did not write a Myron. Then I came up with the idea for Promise Me, I told you, the guy who makes the promise about the girl picking up the girl and doesn't tell the parents. Well, who would do that? Who would have a hero complex and pick up the girl and not tell the parents? Well, Myron's that dumb. <laughs> he would do that. So Myron came back. So that's how I decide. In creating Myron, writers don't like to admit this, but Myron is me with wish fulfillment. Okay? He's stronger, he's faster, he's a better basketball player, though we're both all Americans. <laughs> <laughs> he's funnier. I haven't beaten two areas. One, I'm a better dancer, I'll demonstrate later. And two, I'm wiser in the ways of women. That's not set great shakes. It's like saying syphilis is better than gonorrhea. We're not talking about two geniuses here. But uh, my love life has been a lot, a lot better than Myron's. But to be somewhat serious for a moment, when I created him, I created an interesting tension where he has something I have and I have something he has. This is a good advice if you're trying to create a serious character like this. So Myron's whole goal in life is to get married and move to the burbs and have kids, which I have and I'll never give him. <laughs> when I give it to him, that's really when it's probably all over for him. So he ha is jealous of me. On the other hand, to be a little bit serious, um, I lost my parents at a fairly young age and I loved them and I had a wonderful relationship with them and I miss them every day. So. Myron's relationship with his parents are what I imagine my relationship with my parents would be had they survived. So I don't get to have my parents' age, I get to do it sort of through Myron. And yes, I know I get too melodramatic and sentimental when I write those scenes. If you don't like them, skip them, they're my therapy. <laughs> All right, it's a lot cheaper than going to a shrink. So that's a long answer, but I think that completes the answer to the, my, so my guess is I will write another Myron. I wrote Home a couple books ago. Since then I wrote Don't Let Go, which was not Myron. This book, Runaway, which is not Myron. The one I'm working on now is not Myron, though Hester Crimstein has a main role, a major role in the new one. Um, for the first time, stepping in as a lead, more, lead, more of a lead character. So at least three that I won't be Myron. Thank so, you for asking. Someone in the middle. Yes, you, sir. Yeah. When? Seeing, okay. Seeing a theme here. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me, let me ask, I'll, I'll answer both. So the first question was about Mickey Boltar. For those who don't know, I wrote three young adult novels that if you are a person who likes to keep timeline are between Live Wire and Home in the Myron Boltar story. And please, I, I, I encourage you, if you're the type of person who thinks I don't want to read young adult, they're the exact same thing as a Myron Bolotar novel, except the guy's 16. In fact, in many ways, Mickey's a much darker character than Myron. He's his nephew. 
and um, Myron appears in them. Uh, so I, if you like the Myron Bolotar novels and you kind of miss him, I would really recommend you read the three Mickey Bolotar novels, which is a trilogy. Uh, and so when I brought, came back to home, I took the, those, not, those characters and I brought the young adult characters and I put them in the adult world. I don't think I'm going to write any more Mickey Bolotars. I think Mickey, if I, he comes back, will be in a Myron book. But I never know. Man plans, God laughs, as I always say in each book. So I don't plan on it. Now the win question, which is always a lot of fun. Win is the only character, I think, that I really based off somebody. He is my, when I wanted to, I loved when I was a kid, I loved Sherlock and, 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 and Watson, mm -hmm. I loved Batman and Robin, I loved Captain America and Bucky, you know, um, I, oh, I love buddy stuff. So I wanted to give Myron a sidekick. Um, I didn't want the, the street tough that had been done, the computer weenie had been done, so I based him off my college roommate, who has a name equally obnoxious to Windsor Horn Lockwood III, is ridiculously good looking. And before we would go to parties when we were in college, he would look in the mirror and go, it must suck to be ugly. <laughs> so, so I based this character off of him, Win. The only difference is he can't really fight his way out of a paper bag. But people know it's him, like in his area, because he's, he's the president of Marion Golf Club. He's all the things that Wynn is. So, and he used it like, to get better tea times and to get res restaurant reservations. He gives people dirty, hard looks. So people do think he's kind of Wynn-like, but in real life he can't fight his way to a paper bag. And he actually uh, owned a clothing line for a while called Lily Pulitzer. I don't know, maybe some of the women here oh, are familiar with it. Very loud, green, pinks, Palm Beach, very waspy stuff. So before I go on TV for the first time, he says to me, like, Wynn calls me on the phone. He says, you know, I'm going to be on Brian Gumbel. And he goes, oh, you, have, you must wear one of my ties when you go on. These ties look like someone threw up pink. I mean, so my publicist goes, well, I don't know. If you wear it, Brian's just going to talk about the tie maybe. You're not going to get the book in. Maybe you shouldn't wear it. So I, I, I tell Wynn, I, I might not be able to wear the tie. He goes, oh, no, no, no. You will wear the tie. And I said, no, no, no. You're not really Wynn, remember? <laughs> But I wore the tie. <laughs> and if you ever watched me on TV from about 2001 till maybe two years ago, I always wore a Lily Pulitzer tie. Once you sold the company, I didn't have to anymore. <laughs> um, so, and I had a, a crowd about this size in New York one time, and Wynn was in the audience. The, the real Wynn was in the audience. So I told the story. And then I said, I'm not going to tell you who he is, but Wynn is in the audience. Well, it took them four seconds to figure <laughs> out who he was. And more embarrassing, he had a longer line for signing <laughs> than I did. <laughs> Thank you for asking. <laughs> oh, and I, I don't know if I'm going to write a book. You know, Home has a lot of scenes from his perspective. And I was very hesitant about doing that because it's not a fun place to be inside Wynn's head. And it really came a little too easily to me. So I don't know if I would ever do I, 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 I think you like Wynn because there's not a lot of him. You want, always want more of him. So I, I'm nervous about a book that would be only him. I think that maybe you wouldn't like it as much. That's saying man plans, God laughs. I don't think so. I'm extremely glad I changed out of the pink shirt I was wearing before we got here. And I, <laughs> I feel like I would have uh, triggered. You can I wear them all done. Yeah, right here. Netflix might have something to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. um, well, the question is why haven't there been more adaptations? Um, I don't know. I mean, sometimes it's bad luck. Um, sometimes I put the kibosh on, on things. Tell No One, for example, originally was going to be an American movie, and it would have been horrendous. 
I mean, the script was horrendous. And I had one chance after three years to get the rights back, and I sold it to a French guy named Guillaume Canet, and I was thrilled with that experience. And so I've learned to go, if I can, where I can control it. it used to be the old joke, right, you've heard this a million times, there's a barbed wire fence in the desert, and you, the writer, come this way, and Hollywood comes this way, and you throw the book over, and they throw the money over, and then you run and they run. And that was true, but, and this is going to sound Pollyanna, I've never chased the dollar, I've always chased your heart, you're the reader's heart. Because the dollars also will follow if I chase your heart, if I do what's right. So a lot of times when I've seen something that was gonna be crap, I, I put the kibosh on it, and now I'll only do it if I'm involved. For those who don't know, I signed a five-year deal with Netflix to make more of the shows like The Five and, and Safe and No Second Chance, which I made in France, and The Stranger. So, and some of them are also going to be made into movies, some are gonna be made in Spain in the Spanish language, one might be in French, one might be in Polish, because um, they really have a great international brand. And Netflix has been really good to me. They sort of let me do what I want to do. It's not exactly what I wanted to, but much closer than a network. Networks, you know, my friend R.L. Stein tells a funny story that he came into a network with an idea based off his life. It's like, he'd be a guy like R.L. Stein who writes horror books but has this normal family life. They go, oh my God, we love this idea. We just have two notes. Does he have to be a horror writer and does he have to have a family? <laughs> so I don't have that. Um, I, I have the freedom that I, I get and um, we'll try to do the best job we can. But a lot of times also it was bad luck. I, I had Ben Affleck attached to Tell No and it ended up being dropped. I had Liam Neeson attached to another movie. I had Hugh Jackman attached. I, have, I still have Julia Roberts attached to one. We're still trying to make it with Julia. It'll happen maybe if it doesn't. I also never really pushed it. I mean, um, I, I always had a love-hate relationship with the idea. If I wasn't personally involved to having to do it because, you know, then you, if, if you guys want to say to me safe was no good or whatever, that's fine, that was me. But I don't want you to come and say, oh, you know, that adaptation of your book was no good and I can say, well, I have nothing to do with it. That's not fair, so I don't like doing that. As a reader of a certain age, my friend Arl Stein has to be the best sentence I've ever heard. It's just so <laughs> great. Just sat here, I was like, yeah. He's the coolest dude. He really is. Uh, in the corner? That's that was really beautiful. nice. You know, the, and, and always when a, when, a, when a mother, daughter are here or different generations of, of families are here, it, you know, again, because when I was talking about my own, my own father passing, my parents passing young, it just is so cool for me when I see a mother and a daughter or father, son or father, daughter, whatever it is, those families that, that come here. You know, this is why, I, this is kind of why I write. And I, I want you to do me a favor if you can tonight. First of all, I want you all to buy the book. But I want you to go home tonight around 11 o'clock, say I'm just going to read for 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> and then I want you to curse at me at 4 in the morning. That, I'll be honest, that turns me on. <laughs> does. Uh, Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Yeah. That was beautiful. How do I get from the beginning to the end? God, I don't even know. I mean, it's, it really is a struggle. I mean, here's the thing. It, doesn't, it never gets easier. Every time I kind of think, I'm, you know, I got this down, I don't. And if you're a writer, the secret is to just get words down. So, like, I wrote this book, and I'm looking at it now. And there's some days that it kind of flowed easily, and there were some days that I had a case of mental constipation that could kill a horse. Every word was a struggle, and sitting there going, oh my God, this is horrible and awful. And as I look at this book now, 
I can't tell you what I wrote in the good days and what I wrote in the bad days because it makes no difference. You're going to rewrite it anyway. It's just pulling, pulling that stone out of the ground, the, the, you know, and then you're going to, to rewrite it. So you have to write through all of those things. I just basically, whatever it is, I will put the, if I put somebody in this corner, I may spend days just trying to figure out how to get them out of that corner. But that's all I do. You know, that, I, it's also, you have to treat it like a job. There's an expression that I actually read in the Philip Roth novel. Um, writers, uh, amateurs wait for the muse to arrive. The rest of us just get to work. I can't be that precious. I have to treat it like a job. It might be an art form, but I, you know, a plumber can't say, oh, today I can't do pipes. <laughs> I act the same way. It doesn't mean I, I don't get stuck. It doesn't mean I, I go through a lot of self-hatred. <laughs> a big part of writing is self-hatred. The muse is not an angelic voice in your shoulder. The muse is like a mom's voice going, what, you don't want to be with me? Rather be out with your friends? Come a Friday night, no phone call, nothing? That's what the muse is. It's annoying me all the time. There's always a voice in my head, always. If you're a writer, if you don't have this voice, just give it up. Whatever I'm doing anything else, if I'm driving the carpool to kids, if I'm doing anything else, there's always a voice in my head that says, you should be home writing. <coughs> Recently, because I have nothing else in my life but my kids and writing, I took up golf. Why I didn't smash a glass and jam it in my eye? I don't know, I took up golf. <laughs> But even in those days, those times and days that things are going pretty well, there's always a voice in my head when I'm out in that <coughs> golf course saying, you should be home writing. Might be a guy hit with my iron tee shot, but I'm always, that's, how I, that's, that's my default position. And frankly, if you don't have that in your head, you're probably not going to be a writer, which is okay. And if, you, and if you think you are good, you think you're good as a writer, you're done. Only bad writers think they're good. Every writer I know, and every writer you've had up here, you know, we talked about Lee Child before, we all think we suck. We all think we're phonies. I mean, all, and if not, it's a strange paradox because on the one hand, we think we suck. On the other hand, we have the hubris to say, buy my book and let me just talk to you for 400 pages. <laughs> so it's a weird, I know that those, those don't seem to be the same, but they really are. I know we're closing, so I just want to say a few things before we close because we're, we're, we're kind of running out of time, right? First of all, you want, to get, you want more? You want to do more? Or no? no. First of all, I want to thank you two guys. You guys were really great. Let's hear it for the professional <laughs> book nerds. Thank you. Thank you, Holly. I'm also so glad that we're doing something to support libraries. I don't know any great community that doesn't have a great library. This is the greatest no-brainer in the world. Libraries are a huge. They just, they, every money you put into the library comes back to the public and to you guys tenfold. So thank you very, very much for supporting the libraries. Um, and finally, again, tonight any book that you purchase, any copy of Runaway that you purchase, $5 is going to my dear friend Michael J. Fox Foundation. And Michael is doing really, really well, and we're going to find a cure for Parkinson's, I have, I have no doubt, and Pony Power Therapies. So thank you guys for what you're contributing um, tonight. And mostly just thank you guys for coming out because um, you know, this is, again, it's not a book until I see your faces and know that you're going to take it home and, and, uh, and read it. So thank you all very, very much, and I'll turn it back over to whoever I'm supposed to turn it back over to. Oh, and if you, listen, one more thing. I pre-signed them just in the back room, so if you just want to take one and go home, do it. If you don't want to wait on the line, I'm, you're not going to hurt my feelings. <laughs> I promise you. Grab one go. If you want to wait and have it personalized and take a picture and meet, I'm love that too, but don't feel like you have to. That's why I pre-sign them. So if you just want to go home now, you've had enough of me, I got it. <laughs> just grab the book and go. There's basketball. There we go. Right. There's basketball. How about another huge thank you to Harlan?
Thank you. Thanks, guys. And another, and another huge thank you to our good friends, Adam and Jill from Overdrive. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. My name's Adam Sokol, and I'm the host of the Passions and Prologues podcast. Every week, best-selling authors like Jenny Jackson, Rebecca Mackay, Lisa Scottolini, or Brad Meltzer come on to my show to talk about, yes, their new books, but more importantly, the things that they're crazy passionate about. We've talked about the Muppets, powerlifting, traveling, gardening, home improvement, and so much more. We dig into why these things are their passions, how they inspire their writing, and where they came to fall in love with these random assorted things. Be sure to subscribe to the Passions and Prologues podcast wherever you get your podcasts and check out evergreenpodcast.com to learn more.